Candy from Strangers by Mark Coggins is original, smart, and good to the last page, says best-selling author and executive producer of the hit TV series Bosch, Michael Connolly. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 5. Gum for the Gumshoe I had the Hangtown Fry for lunch at Sam's Grill on Bush, and read the Morning Chronicle while I massacred the dish of fried breaded oysters, eggs, and bacon that was supposedly invented during the gold rush in a rowdy burg called Hangtown, now Placerville. It's gratifying to know that the very first California cuisine did not feature jicama, baby basil, or mango chutney but instead combined two of my favorites, bacon grease and fried breaded seafood. I was nearly through the paper before I spotted the article I was both dreading and strangely anxious to see. It was nothing more than a two-inch squib on the second-to-the-last page of the Bay Area section, probably thrown in by the night editor right before the edition closed. It said the body of an unidentified Asian woman had been discovered in an alley near the 100 block of New Montgomery, and ask anyone with information about the case to contact detectives or call the anonymous Crime Stoppers line. There was no mention of cause of death and no mention of me. I felt the tension go out of my shoulders and realized my anxiety had been about seeing the girl's discovery linked to me. For once, I told myself again, I really did want to stay out of somebody else's troubles. I quartered the paper neatly, placed it on the table, and piled 22 bucks on top, knowing from experience that the fry, an anchor steam beer, and a decent tip could all be covered by that amount. I backed out of the booth, elbowed my way past the crowd of businessmen waiting at the small bar for a table, and heard John, the Mater D, tell a newcomer that, quote, if he wasn't happy about the wait, maybe a McDonald's Happy Meal would suit him better, unquote, as I went through the door. Gourmet Magazine had called John insolent and arrogant beyond belief, so I guess he was working to keep his reputation intact. I walked a dozen or so blocks to the garage on Turk in the seedy tenderloin district where I kept my car. It was actually an inexpensive repair shop for German makes, but I gave the owner a hundred bucks a month for the privilege of parking my 1968 Ford Galaxy in the basement next to the ailing Mercedes and BMWs that were his stock and trade. I had to crank the Galaxy hard to get it started, and this elicited the usual snickers and smart remarks from the Latino mechanics who work there. Hey, man, said one. I had a car just like that in high school, until my dad got a job. I threw a wadded-up paper bag from Popeye's Chicken and Biscuits that I just happened to have in the car, at him, and barreled out of the basement. When I got to street level, I went down Turk to Goff and from there to Highway 80 and the Bay Bridge. I was heading to the East Bay for my meeting with the Stockwells in Union City, but since I had the time, I thought I would stop and chat with the police officer who had been so charmed by Lieutenant Stockwell. Given my own relationship with the lieutenant, I figured we couldn't help but get along. The Union City Police Headquarters was in one of those multi-purpose civic centers that suburban cities seemed to favor. You could get a library book, talk to your city councilman, apply for a building permit, have a barbecue in the adjoining park, 
let the kiddies romp in the playground, and bail your white trash Uncle Wilford from the drunk tank in just one stop. I eased the galaxy into a spot next to the adjoining strip of park, and as I stepped out of the car was immediately beset by a Mongol horde of honking geese and quacking ducks on the make for a handout from their home in the little weed-fouled canal that ran down the middle of the park. I reached back into the car for one of the now very well-aged Popeye's biscuits, broke it apart, and tossed the pieces into the grass. A lot more honking and quacking, combined with a great deal of pecking and flapping of wings, quickly ensued. The Civic Center building looked like it was designed by an underpaid assistant of Frank Lloyd Wright. It was a squat, bunker-like building with a red tile roof and a narrow slice of windows that ran around the circumference at a point just below the roof line. Below the windows was a strip of formed concrete bric-a-brac that gave the building its Frank Lloyd Wright feel. The police department had its offices on the back on the first floor, and its reception area was smaller than my dentist. Either they didn't have a lot of business, or they didn't feel the need to put up a front. The reception desk wasn't staffed, and I wasted about five minutes perusing the tiny trophy case, A crystal plaque for a fifth-place finish in the law enforcement division of a relay race was the highlight, and reading the Union City Police Department mission statement. Catching crooks was the main provision, before I noticed a sign directing me to press the white button for service. I pressed away, and this produced a flinty-sounding buzz, followed several moments later by a flinty-looking desk sergeant. She had leathery skin with too dark lipstick and too dark rouge painted high on her cheekbones, and the marks on her belt indicated that the buckle had been let out at least twice in the battle to contain her spreading waistline. She looked at my empty hands and then down at the untidy stack of forms in a tray on the counter and said, You must fill out the request for a police report form before I can process your request. I forced a limp smile. Actually, I'm not here for a copy of a report. I'm here to see an officer. She straightened the stack of forms and then glared at me like I was the one who put them out of order. Which one? I had left my notes from the interview with Ellen Stockwell at the office, so I said, I'm interested in talking to the officer in charge of the Carolyn Stockwell missing persons case. I can't remember her name, but I'm told she's a black female. Who told you? Carolyn's mother, Ellen Stockwell. And what's your involvement? I've been hired by the family. She looked down at the tray of forms and yanked it three inches further away from me. Apparently, I was losing ground. If you don't know the name of the officer, then I'm afraid I can't help you. Give me a break here. How many black female detectives can there be in a department this size? She smiled like a toad that swallowed a fly. Sorry, she said, and started to walk away. I was getting the idea that she would be perfect in the maitre d' role at Sam's, but just then a name swam in front of my consciousness. Wait, I blurted. Ruth Washburn. That snatched the toy from her happy meal. She blinked at me, opened her mouth, closed it, and then slunk back the way she had come. About 15 minutes later, a sloppy-looking man came out from a door to the right of the reception counter. He had bug eyes, thin, straight hair flecked with dandruff, and an odd manner of letting his head hang down over his chest. He looked up at me from under furry eyebrows that grew together in a single arched line. I'm Luke Calhoun, he said, captain of the Investigations and Communications Division. He put out his hand. I shook it warily. I asked to speak with Ruth Washburn. He nodded. About the Carolyn Stockwell case. Yes, that's right. 
I've taken responsibility. Since when do captains handle missing persons cases? Calhoun turned his head sideways like a bird eyeing a worm. Around the same time private investigators do, Mr. Reardon. You know my name. And a good bit more. I just got off the phone with Mrs. Stockwell. He pulled open the door. Let's go back to my office. I followed him down a corridor with partitioned detective cubicles on either side to an office at the back. Apparently Union City thought the traditional bullpen arrangement was old-fashioned. This could have been the layout of any other Silicon Valley office building. Calhoun's office was filled with modular Herman Miller furniture, of the sort one would find in the offices of Silicon Valley executives, including an expensive-looking ergonomic chair behind the desk. There was also a computer and a Palm Pilot sitting in a cradle next to it. The image of the high-tech police captain would have been complete, except for the wide, quadruple-decker filing cabinets, presumably full of primitive paper case folders, and the gumball machine on his desk that dispensed jawbreaker-sized gumballs for a quarter. Would you close the door behind you, please? said Calhoun just before I planted my butt in one of his two fully adjustable wheeled guest chairs. I went back to close the door and was hovering over the chair again when he said, May I see your pocket license and your photo ID card, please? California had recently mandated that private investigators carry a copy of their license and a photo ID. I fished both cards out of my wallet and passed them over. Hair that normally lay flat on Calhoun's forehead flopped forward while he gave the cards the old bird eye. He nodded when he was satisfied and passed them back. Do you have a problem with authority, Mr. Reardon? I slid my wallet back into my hip pocket and dropped into one of the chairs. Not really. It may be that authority occasionally has a problem with me. I smiled to show that I was joking. He didn't smile back. Apparently authority does have a problem with you, he said. And as recently as last night. I spoke to a Detective Kittredge of the SFPD before I called Mrs. Stockwell. You've been busy. Since September 11th, I've made a point of reading all the felony bulletins issued in the area, and your name was mentioned prominently today in one from San Francisco. I shrugged. I don't know what Kittredge told you, but I'm fully cooperating with his investigation. He told me you were a showboating asshole who routinely circumvents and undermines police authority. Great. Did he also mention that he tried to intimidate me by dripping wastewater from a sewer pipe on me? I leaned forward in the chair and clasped my hands tightly in front of me. This wasn't working. I needed to cool down if I was going to get Calhoun's help. Look, I said after a moment, I think we're getting off on the wrong foot. Kittredge told me to butt out of his investigation, and that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm here for an entirely different reason, and it sounds like you've got a pretty good idea what it is. The Stockwells have hired me to look into their daughter's disappearance. I wanted to talk with you folks to see where you were with the case. Mrs. Stockwell told me that you hadn't actually accepted the case. That's right. I thought I should talk to her husband first. And us too, I gather. You got me on that one. Calhoun gave a sarcastic smile. Do you know anything about missing persons in California, Mr. Reardon? I'd like to think so. Calhoun picked up a thick binder from his desk. This is the missing persons quarterly bulletin, produced by the California Department of Justice. It has sections for preschool children, primary school children, secondary school children, emancipated juveniles, adults, and dependent adults. With the exception of dependent adults, each section averages about 500 pages, 
and each page has five individuals. That's about 4,000 people. Calhoun paused to wiggle his furry eyebrows. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. The people in the bulletin are the featured cases. The actual number of open cases at any one time is about 26,000, and the total number of missing people reported each year is between 140,000 and 160,000. So your point is there's a lot of missing persons. Let me ask you another question. Do you know anything about the Stockwell family? Golly, I feel like I'm not holding up my end of the conversation. Calhoun stood up abruptly and marched out of the room, with his head hanging at its odd angle and his torso bent well past the perpendicular, each step seeming just to save him from pitching forward on his face. When he returned, he held a stack of police folders in his hands. You came to the right place to learn about the Stockwells. We've got all the information. He dropped one of the folders on the desk. For starters, here's the case file on Carolyn Stockwell. That's the one you came for, but I'm afraid you'll be disappointed. It's pretty skimpy. He dropped another folder on the desk. That one's thicker. That's the file on Quentin Jr.'s suicide. Used his old man's service revolver to blow his brains out. I will pretend that I was sorry to see him go, but it would have been better for all concern if he had just crawled in a hole somewhere and ate the barrel. Instead, he went into the high school campus one night, shot the lock off the principal's door, and offed himself while sitting behind the principal's desk. He paused, wanting me to comment. Ellen Stockwell told me he died of a drug overdose. Did he leave a note? Calhoun snorted. No, just an empty bottle of rum. He flipped more folders onto the desk. Here are the files on Quentin Jr.'s previous brushes with the law. Let's see. We've got joyriding, vandalism, underage drinking, shoplifting. He was talking faster now, his face turning pink with emotion and his hair flopping forward once more. Even a little cruelty to animals. He dropped the second to the last folder. Mind you, a lot of the charges were dropped in deference to Quentin Sr. You know, fraternal order of the police and all that. He took the final folder, a thick red one and held it up with two hands like it was a product he was about to endorse. Then there's this file, a very special one. Any idea what's in it? Weight loss secrets of Las Vegas showgirls? Calhoun slammed the folder down on his desk. Bastard, he nearly shouted. You're going to be sorry you said that. It's a report on an attempted rape. The perp was Quentin Jr., and the victim was... I finally understood. Your daughter... That's right, smart guy. He plopped into his chair, breathing heavily. He tried to comb his hair back into place, but tendrils of it got mired in the perspiration on his forehead. Now you know about the Stockwell family. I looked at him for a long moment, shifting my words carefully before I spoke. Look, Calhoun, I'm sorry about the Las Vegas crack. I can see how you wouldn't be a big fan of Stockwell Jr. Or Stockwell Sr. from what I've heard of his remarks to Officer Washburn. But if you have a daughter, then you can certainly understand the anguish Mrs. Stockwell is feeling, and as a fellow parent and police officer, want to do everything you can do to bring her home safely. Calhoun shook his head, disbelieving. Aren't you the little prig? Did you hear what I said about the statistics earlier? Given the volume of cases and the resources available to us, we are doing everything required of a small city police force to find her. Everything required and not a particle more. 
Calhoun looked at me deliberately while he scratched his armpit. He said nothing. How about letting me take a look at the case file then? You said it was skimpy, but there might be something I could work with. He stopped scratching and moved to pull the folders out of my reach. California state law does not require city police forces to cooperate with private investigators, he said. Nor do Union City statutes. In fact, it's frowned upon. I hauled myself to my feet and fished a quarter out of my pocket. I slipped it into the slot of his gumball machine and turned the handle. The gumballs rattled inside, and a bright green one clattered down to appear at the opening in the base. I held it up so he could see it. Thanks for the gum, Captain. I hope my having it doesn't undermine the authority of the city charter. You have been listening to Candy from Strangers, a book Mystery Scene magazine described as crackling and whip smart. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. <laughs> <laughs>